0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of A Light Into My Path podcast. I am your host, Howard Sides, and today we're continuing our study in the book of Revelation. And, excuse me, we are in chapter 16 and uh, verse 16, and if if there is a, I guess, the climax of the story, uh, verse 16 is probably the focal point of the whole book of Revelation in that when you mention the book of Revelation to anyone, believer, non-believer, one of the first words that pops up in association with Revelation is this word Armageddon. And so here, verse 16, uh, we have our mention of this place of the, this coming battle of good and evil. And verse 16, it says, and he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. And so as we get into this, uh, we see uh, uh, once again that most people who uh, may not know anything about Revelation, um, pretty much everybody's heard of this word Armageddon. It's thrown around um, quite liberally, uh, and I don't mean that as an unbelieving thing, or a, uh, but it's just a word used, uh, you know, when I was Desert Shield, Desert Storm. Uh, the mention was Armageddon and the association of where we were there where, you know, Babylon is located in parts of the region where Iraq and Iran and all of that is located. So uh, it's not far from the presumption that uh, it is the gathering place of armies. And we'll see where uh, this battle uh, in Revelation is not the only one to take place in, the, in this, in this uh, valley where Armageddon is located. Uh, there's been many, many battles over recent history and ancient history. Uh, It's just one of these events and places that uh, proves the saying, you know, history repeats itself. So we'll we'll get into that here. Uh, The first thing I want you to notice uh, in this verse is the phrase, he gathered them together. He gathered them together. Now the he here indicates and tells us clearly that it is God himself, Ordering the assembly and the movements of these armies. Uh, you may find that kind of shocking that God is in control of the movement of the evil forces here. Well, God is in total control. And, and you think, well, why would he have this? In the, it, It's to uh, pr- present the evil forces and to get rid of them once and for all. I mean, we see God's grace in letting it go this long. Um, it's not God's fault that this is happening uh, it goes right back to the beginning, Adam and Eve. And when they c- committed that first sin, um, this is the result. I mean, it just has snowballed into what we see today. And so that's where we're at. Uh, so we see what we're here again, where God is controlling uh, these armies. Now, if it had been these three unclean spirits we just mentioned up in verse 13, uh, then the phrase would be different. It would It would be written... Uh, to say they gathered them together. Uh, Now, the word Armageddon, uh, uh, the Bible clearly tells us here, it's a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon, and it is the combination of two Hebrew words, har, H-A-R, meaning a mountain or range of hills, and then uh, Megiddon, M-E-G-I-D-D-O-N, Means means it's a place in Palestine. So this battlefield is a hill or a range of hills, a mountain or a range of hills, therefore, in what we know is Palestine. Uh, So now this is not based on today's maps. Now we know there is a Palestine today, uh, but it's a biblical definition of the region of Palestine, which is much bigger than what there is. Uh, with Palestine today. Now, to understand what happens in this famous place of Armageddon, uh, we must understand all the history behind it. Uh, in June of 1981, a man by the name of Dr. Ernest L. Martin wrote an article entitled, New Prophetic Discoveries Concerning the End Times. Now, the following is information gathered from this article. And to, to I kind of broke it down into uh, sections of what it uh, talked about in, in the book. There's past history, a way to understand the future. Number two, the past can explain the future. Uh, number three, the past explains the future through Herman, Herman, human personalities. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, number four, past history of nations involved. Number five, the significance for our time. Uh, number six, Edom, at Exodus, number seven, uh, there is no battle at Armageddon. Yeah, that's right. Everybody talks about this battle of Armageddon, battle of Ar- there is no battle at Armageddon. All this verse tells us so far, and of course we'll explain what I meant. What I mean when I get that is that he gathered them together in a place called Armageddon. Now there's been many battles there, but here in Revelation. There is no battle. And what I mean by that is a military conflict where sides are firing at each other and that sort of thing. We'll we'll explain it. Uh, But next section, uh, what occurs before the destruction of a man uh, that is referred to as the Assyrian? And again, we'll explain all that when we get there. Then it talks about Moses and Elijah and the role they have there. Lot's place of safety, Elijah's ascent, and Moses' burial place. Um, And then I think that is the... Last section that we'll talk about there. No, it ain't. (laughs) Uh, Number 11, a place of safety. Uh, Number 12, Lot and Moses burial site. And then I believe that is leading up to the final one, which is the 13th point. uh, The final conflict. Yes, the final conflict. There you go. So there's a lot to cover, and we're not going to get anywhere near close to finishing this in probably one, maybe even two episodes, so we'll get into it and get as far as we can, uh, just so I can get that information to you. All right, the first uh, point from his writing there, past history, a way to understand the future, and what he writes about in this book, it's, it's a point called the duality principle, the duality principle. What he means by that is the use of past histories of individuals and of nations to help explain contemporary uh, or end time events. It's very similar to what we, uh, a biblical, a Bible student uses called the law of first mention. In other words, when it's uh, it's something of an event or uh, a point that's taken first in the Bible, the meaning and the characteristic of what is said uh, carries on through the Bible. Uh, that's another point to show us that God does not change His mind about the things that He alliterates to be sin such as homosexuality, um, idol worship, all of that, he still holds to the same law that he wrote in the very beginning. God has never changed his mind on any of that. Uh, Okay, Uh, so how the duality principle works. All right, first, uh, it brings us to our second point. The past can explain the future. Uh, King Solomon actually referred to this principle. All things in life and nature were cyclical or things would return to their former state. And he uses examples of of nature, uh, all in the book of Ecclesiastes, by the way. Uh, First, he uses the sun. Second, he uses the wind. Third, he uses the water. Uh, So the first example, the sun, he mentions in Ecclesiastes chapter one and verse five. He says, the sun also ariseth, and the sun goeth down and hasteth to his place where he arose. (laughs) And you kind of (coughs) see Solomon's looking at it As, you know, as the day progresses, the sun slowly goes across the sky, you know, and Solomon's watching this thing. And when it goes down, it's like it hurries over to the other side for the next morning so it can come back up slowly and go back down. And then it hurries back over to the, and it repeats it. That's the way he saw it. Uh, The very next verse, verse number six, he talks about the wind. The wind goeth toward the south and turneth about unto the north. It whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again according to his circuits. Um, it's like a big circle. He he said, you know, the wind blows south, then it turns around, the wind blows north, then it turns around, it blows back south again, then it turns back north. It's in continual motion. The wind never stops. Uh, Verse seven, he mentions this water. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Unto the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. And basically what Solomon is saying here, uh, is it's like you cut on a water spigot and it never stops running and the sink never, uh, fills up. It just, and you think about that, look at all the water that runs into our our, our world's oceans. And, you know, these that are pushing this, uh, uh, global warming effect. Um, well, the earth does have global warming, but also has global cooling. I mean, don't, Again, it's this duality principle or or this cyclical thing. There's always hot seasons. There's always cold seasons. Um, I I live in North Carolina, and here we've just had three weeks of snow. As a matter of fact, there's another chance of it tomorrow. And it's very rare, okay, uh, that it happens that often here. And so we could use that argument and say, well, that's proof that there's this global uh, cooling happening. Happening. It, it's not. It's the weather patterns. And, and it's Solomon's fully in understanding of what's going on here when he says that. And again, and again he's saying, you know, the, the ocean never fills up. Or, of course, we know this is the process of evaporation. Um, the rivers never run out of water. They may get really low. Some of them actually do run out of water. But the, the bed is always there. And depending on the water tables and the amount of water, you know, uh, at its source, uh, it continually runs that way. Now, such events, natural events like hurricanes, uh, tornadoes, may cut a different path, but the water is always flowing somewhere. Now, when King Solomon noticed um, these uh, actions of the sun and the wind and the water, he applies it to uh, human activity uh, a little a little later on in verse number 9. And he says, The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be. And that which is done is that which shall be done, and there is no new thing under the sun. Um, Everywhere, every year, we see new inventions, and the argument right away would be, "Well, there's always new things under the sun." What he's saying is, is the process, the the way things are, um, and there is, uh, you know, it may be new to us, but it's not new to God. Um, and if you go right back to Genesis when it said that, that, you know, man uh reached this point where um it was evil in his heart continually. Uh and and then when you see when Cain uh was forced out, that mark was put on him, and then it tells us a little about his lineage and some of the children he had. One was a tent maker, one was a blacksmith and that sort of thing. We don't know how advanced those civilizations actually were. Did they have electricity? Did they have computers? Well, they may not have had that method of of science, uh, but who's to say they didn't have something, uh, some alter method of that science, okay, so th- th- that's the point he's trying to make. All right, number three, uh, the past explains the future through human personalities. Now, the duality principle also applies here, especially in the life of Christ. Now, Paul calls Christ the last Adam, not the second Adam or the next Adam, he calls him the last Adam, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 47, and so it is written, the first man Adam was made a living soul, the last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Now, as Adam was the headship of all human flesh on earth, so Christ, the last Adam, became the headship of human spirituality to bring them into the family of God. Uh, Romans 5, verses 18 through 19. Therefore, as by the offense of one, Adam, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. The penalty of sin is death. Even so, by the righteousness of one, Christ, the free gift, salvation, came upon all men unto justification of life. That means that Christ's sacrifice on the cross was worthy to allot us salvation If we accept it. Verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, Adam, many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one, Christ, shall many be made righteous. And the only way we can be made righteous is not through our own acts. We have to accept salvation through the sacrifice of the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the only way. And that's what Christ was saying in, uh, I believe it's the book of John, when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The clearly tells us uh, it is singular. It is it is only one way. Um, now, uh, let's look at Isaac in comparison to Christ. Now, both had miraculous births. Um, Isaac's birth is talked about in Genesis chapter 18, while Jesus' birth is talked about in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18. Uh, both assisted with their own sacrifices. Uh, if you'll remember, Genesis 22, 6 tells us this, that Isaac helped Abraham, his father, carry the wood to the altar. While in Jesus' case, John chapter 19, verse 7, tells us that Jesus carried his own cross piece to the cross uh, crucifixion. Uh, both were offered, uh, if you want to use that word, both sacrificed or, or were offered basically in the area of Jerusalem. Uh, both were willing to die of their own free will. As Abraham came from the mountain of sacrifice with Isaac alive, this symbolized the resurrection of Christ. Uh, it was also a three day journey, if you didn't know that. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 18, by faith, <coughs> excuse me, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. While it is true that Abraham had another physical son in Ishmael, it is Isaac in whom the Bible recognizes as his only legal and legitimate son. But the most significant comparison uh, is found in Moses and Christ. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 18 verses 15 through 19 says, The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of of thy brethren, like unto me, unto him ye shall hearken. According to all that thou desirest of the Lord thy God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, neither let me see this great fire any more, that I die not. And the Lord said unto me, they have well spoken that which they have spoken. I will raise them up a prophet from among thy, their brethren, like unto thee, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And while there are comparisons of many others, such as Joshua, Jacob, and David, the point is this how can we fully understand the teaching of Christ unless the historical biographies of his type are fully known? This is using the past to comprehend. The future and many of the prophets had to rely on that many of the things that they were told that they they couldn't understand what they were writing it was future events um nobody had ever been resurrected like this nobody had ever come and and voluntarily died for another uh in the in the example that was set before christ and yet they had to write about it and and the only thing that they had to write would be a comparison and it was comparing the life of what Moses did and what Isaac did and what David did. Um, And and, and it kind of, in a way, it helped it connect it for these prophets, but but they still didn't know uh, what it was they were talking about fully. Um, I I believe at some point, in some way, uh, God may have laid it upon their heart or revealed it to them, uh, some capacity of what they were talking about. but, But as far as a full comprehensive understanding, Uh, of knowing what it was, (laughs) there was no way to do it. Okay, so uh, point number four, uh, past history of nations involved. Now, this is the central theme as the history of the nations are caught up in the repeating concept of prophetic interpretation. Now, the secret to this concept is found when Isaiah asked God what would happen in the future, and God replies in Isaiah chapter 41, verse 22. He says, let them bring them forth and show us what shall happen. Let them show the former things, what they be, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them or declare us things for to come. So God was challenging the people to have their idols do what he could do. And what God is saying here is he can, He can. what God is saying he can do is show us through past events what will happen in the future. All right. Now, while the central theme is uh, the past history of nations, the focal point of the discussion here is one specific set of events, the exodus of Israel. Even more specific is the events that take place in the very last year of that exodus. From the time Israel left, Kadesh Barnea, in Numbers chapter 20, verse 22, on through the time they came to Edom, then Moab, and Ammon, then the death of Moses and his burial in Mount Nebo, and then to Joshua, who again is another type of Christ, leading Israel into the promised land, symbolic of Christ's kingdom established on earth in the millennial reign. The promised land is not symbolic of heaven. Totally different. Each of these events will be typically repeated right before his kingdom is established. Okay, uh, point number five um uh significance for our time. Um, if you will, flip over to the book of Isaiah chapter 34. We'll read a uh, passage of scripture there. Isaiah 34 <clears throat> and we're going to read um, this whole chapter 17 verses. shouldn't take too long, <laughs> okay? Um, as a preview of what we're going to read. This chapter is a recount of God's word to the prophet Isaiah on what will happen in the future, okay? All right, so Isaiah chapter 34, verse one. Come near ye nations to hear and hearken ye people. Let the earth hear and all that is therein, the world and all things that come forth of it. For the indignation of the Lord is upon all nations and his fury upon all their armies. He hath utterly destroyed them. He hath delivered them to the slaughter. That's a description of the real battle of Armageddon, okay? Now, verse three, their slain also shall be cast out and their stink shall come up out of their carcasses and the mountains shall be melted with their blood. And that word melted there is the Hebrew word masas, M-A-S-A-S, it means to liquefy. Verse four, and all the host of heaven shall be dissolved and the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll and all their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falleth off the vine and as a falling fig from the fig tree. And we've seen that in some of the events that have come to pass already through the opening of the seals, through the blowing of the trumpets and through the pouring out of the vials. Verse five, for my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Behold, it shall come down upon Edomia and upon the people of my curse to judgment. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is made fat with fatness and with the blood of lambs and goats with the fat of the kidneys, kidneys of rams. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, for the Lord hath a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Edumia. And the unicorns shall come down with them. unicorns, hmm. And the bullocks with the bulls. And their land shall be soaked with blood and their dust made fat. With fatness, for it is the day of the Lord's vengeance, and the year of recompenses for the controversy of Zion, and the streams thereof shall be turned into pitch, and the dust thereof into brimstone, and the land thereof shall become burning pitch. it shall not be quenched night nor day, the smoke thereof shall go up for ever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. But the cormorant and the bittern shall possess it. The owl also and the raven shall dwell in it. And he shall stretch out upon it the line of confusion and the stones of emptiness. They shall call the nobles thereof to the kingdom, but none shall be there, and all her princes shall be nothing. The thorns shall come up in her palaces, nettles and brambles in the fortresses thereof. And it shall be an habitation of dragons and a court for owls. Dragons, unicorns and dragons. Mm. Verse 14, the wild beasts of the desert shall also meet with the wild beasts of the island. And the satyr, S-A-T-Y-R, shall cry to his fellow. The screech owl also shall rest there and find for herself a place of rest. There shall the great owl make her nest and lay and hatch and gather under her shadow There shall the vultures also be gathered, every one with her mate. Seek ye out of the book of the Lord, and read. No one of these shall fail. None shall want her mate. For my mouth it hath commanded, and his spirit it hath gathered them. Verse 17 And he hath cast the lot for them, and his hand hath divided it unto them by line. They shall possess it forever from generation to generation, shall they dwell therein. Again, so Isaiah has asked God, you know, what's going to happen in the end? And God here kind of explains it to him. Uh, now, of course, he doesn't say this nation's going to fall by this amount and on this date this is going to happen, but he, he, he's basically telling him judgment's coming. Uh, it's already been decided, and I'm not changing my mind. The uh, the, the events are cast. Uh, the people involved They've got their role, and they're following it line by line. So, uh, it's interesting uh, to note that not many uh, who teach or preach on prophecy refer to this chapter, but it is rather specific and distinct in the events and a timeline for what and how things will happen. Um, Follow follow what he's saying and and kind of catch on to what he's saying. Verse 2, God destroys the armies of all the nations. Verse 3, there's enough blood to make the mountains sink up to a horse's bridle. Now it doesn't say horse's bridle here, but it does in Revelation. We'll get into that in, in a few verses later on. Uh, verse number four. It mentions events that are listed in 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 10. And we'll read that. 2 Peter 3:10. But the Lord, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. They mentioned there in verse 4 about the falling leaf, like the leaves falling out of the trees. Verse 5, it mentions a specific nation by name, Edomia. Now, Edomia is the name of the nation of Edom, E-D-O-M, Edom. This is where the actual so-called Battle of Armageddon will physically take place. The valley of Jehoshaphat of decision is on the western side of Edom. And we'll get into that. We've mentioned it before, but we'll get into a little bit more of this valley later on. Verse 8. So, th- so there's no confusion on what day this is. God specifically calls it the day of the Lord's vengeance. And the year of recompenses for the controversy of Zion. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, There's a lot of symbolism symbolism in in Revelation, but then there's a lot of literal things, too. And here, when he's quoting these things by, you know, the day and the year, uh, it's a specific pinpoint. Now, the phrase, day of the Lord's vengeance, is a phrase describing what we call the day of the Lord, which refers to the time period starting with the rapture of the church and ends with the destruction of the present earth and heaven. Um, it, it, to clarify that a little bit, it's, it's everything that happens between the rapture of the church and and this final battle, or, or the, basically the establishment of the millennial kingdom. It's all the events that we've been covering in Revelation so far. Okay, uh, Verse 9 and 10 describe the land as continually burning from then on. Verses 11 through 15 describe the wasteland it will become as God names specific animals that will be the only things able to inhabit the land. Uh, Verses 16 and 17, God is adamant about the factuality of the events and that they will happen. They will happen. Now, this land of Edom, why does God show such anger and judgment on this place? Uh, It goes all the way back to where Edom uh, gets its name from, uh, again, it's the first mention, basically. Edom gets its name from a specific event involving twin brothers. Genesis chapter 25 and verse 30. And Esau said to Jacob, and if you remember, Esau and Jacob were twin brothers. Esau was a real uh, manly man type where Jacob kind of had a feminine side to him. Um, e uh, Esau was always out with his father, was hunting, uh, and he was the hunter gatherer Jacob uh was the cook and cleaner up with the eye, he stayed he stuck with his mom while Esau stuck with his dad and a lot of families are like that it, you you've got twins and they're so much alike but then there's yet there's times when twins are born and they're so opposite this is one of those where they're... and you could almost say that it's obvious by the description of them because it describes Esau as being uh real hairy and uh uh red red hair but really burly And Jacob had a real beautiful complexion. Obviously, they're not uh, identical twins. They're fraternal twins, fraternal twins, but they are born at the same time. So again, to the verse, Genesis chapter 25, verse 30. And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom. So Esau's name becomes Edom. And you think, well, what is that? Edom comes from the root word for Adam which means red or ruddy, or to show blood in the face. Have you ever been embarrassed and your face turned red? Uh, That's called Edom, basically, all right? So, when Israel, during the Exodus, left Kadesh Barnea, who was the first nation they encountered? It was Edom. Now, Israel was passing through their territory and asked permission to do so even offering to pay for food they ate and water their animals drank. Now, Edom's answer uh, is found in Numbers chapter 20, verses 20 and 21. And he said, Thou shalt not go through. And Edom came out against him with much people and with a strong hand. Thus, Edom refused to give Israel passage through his border. Wherefore, Israel turned away from him. So basically, they refused, Edom refused Israel safe passage, and even came out in military force to make sure that they went another route, okay? So, uh, the sixth point uh, in this book, Edom at the Exodus. Now, the refusal to let Israel pass through was unreasonable and unbrotherly. Remember, they go back to being twin brothers, there should be some commonality there. But from this event, Edomites became known as the people of my curse. And that is mentioned in Isaiah chapter 34 and verse 5. The people of my curse. <laughs> All right, making a note there. Uh, to make this point clear, nearly every single prophet speaks of prophecies against Edom. More than any other individual nation. Uh That's a scary thing in and of itself when you think about it. Of all the prophecies out there, and again, you would think that most of the focal point of the prophecies was to point towards Christ, to point towards Christ, the coming Messiah, the coming Messiah. But then there's this side note that all of them had something to say about Edom. (laughs) This shows the level of revenge that God is holding uh, to unleash on this nation of Edom. Okay, now the seventh point. You remember when I said there was no battle at Armageddon? All right, so here we are. (laughs) Now, the verse everyone uses to associate this huge battle with Armageddon or in Armageddon is our text here, Revelation 16, verse 16. Listen to what it says. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. No mention of a fight. All it says here is, is that he's gathering the enemy. We don't even see where there's like these two opposing forces gathering, that they see each other or, or that they're measuring each other. All it is is one side gathering here. That's all it says. Now, what actually happens is this. All right. The northern armies from most of the world, Gog is their commander, are, are to gather in the valley of Jezreel around the site of Armageddon. Uh, then they move in two or three columns or armed forces in a southern direction. Their objective is to conquer Jerusalem. Now the first column will take the coastal route southward just as the Assyrians did in the days of Hezekiah. That's in uh, Isaiah chapters 36 through 39. It goes into detail about that. Or could this represent the kings of the South's troops? We don't really know. So it's the first column of the northern troops, or it's the the movement of the kings of the south troops. Not very clear there. Um, A second column will journey eastward to the Jordan Valley, and then head south toward Jericho, and then around the Dead Sea into Edom. Uh, They will set up camp in Edom, awaiting the arrival of the first column coming from the coastal route. These two armies will join forces in the area known as the Valley of Jehoshaphat or Valley of Decision, same place. This will surround the central Judean area where Jerusalem is located. Or again, could this represent the kings from the east's troops? (laughs) I'm throwing that in there as like a catch. Make you question everything, right? Just so we know. All right, the third column, which then leaves the area of Armageddon, will proceed directly south through Samaria on the central highland route to Jerusalem. This column will be led by a man that Isaiah calls the Assyrian. Isaiah chapter 10 verse 5. O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger, and the staff in their hand is mine indignation. So, this man called the Assyrian, which we now know, is the same as Gog. Isaiah is calling Gog the Assyrian. Now, during their march southward, Isaiah 10 verses 28 through 32 tells us that this army affects a considerable amount of slaughter before they finally arrive and encircle Judea and Jerusalem. Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 describes the movement of this column as well. Now, when this man called the Assyrian, the commander, the Assyrian, and his forces reach Jerusalem, he finds someone waiting for him there, a powerful and mighty king. Jesus will be there waiting for him. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 32, tells us the Assyrian will shake his fist at Jesus. And the, then Jesus responds in verses 33 and 34. Behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, shall lop the bough with terror. And the high ones of stature shall be hewn down, and the haughty shall be humbled, and he shall come down the thickets of the and he shall cut down the thickets of the forest with iron, and Lebanon shall fall by a mighty one. Okay, so I know I've thrown a bunch of information at you here. I'm going to back up a little bit. We're actually going to go back into Isaiah chapter 10. We're going to read the passage, verses 28 down through uh, 34. And there's a lot of names thrown out here, uh, but, but it's for the specificity of what God is saying, okay? It's to clarify uh, the progression of events. And, and as I go down and read this, I'll um, do my best to uh, point the things out to you. Because, uh, man, I am a note-taker in my Bible. I've got notes everywhere. I've got one of those wide-margin Bibles. I, if you're a student of the Bible, you should invest in one of those. It's a great thing. Um, I know there's these Bibles that have like note pages in between. Of I, I'm so scared of, of ripping out one of those pages. I, I can't do that. I just get, um, well, the Bible I have is a uh, Schofield Study Number 3. Is that what this is? I think it is. It says it in here. Schofield Yeah, it's, yeah, that doesn't make a difference. It's, it's not the Schofield notes, it's, it's the Bible, but then it's got the wide margin. But uh, Schofield does have some good charts and things in here in this Bible. That's why I like it so much. Okay, here we are. Isaiah chapter 10, verse 28. Um, and uh, if you have a Schofield like I do, uh, uh, it, it'll say right there, the title above it, it says the Assyrians advance and defeat. Uh, verse 28, he has come to Aath, he is passed to Migron, at Michmash he hath laid up his carriages. All right, first phrase, he has come to Aiath. Aiath comes uh, from Ai, the city of Ai, Ai is how you pronounce, it. and that means the heap of ruins. And in the mention of several of these places, it is given us the distance from Jerusalem, and we've done it in miles, many of, you know, Europeans and and things like that, do it in kilometers. I, I can't even keep that measurement in my head. Uh, I'm not a math student by any means. Uh, so <laughs> I'm gonna give it to you in miles. Uh, if you have to, you can transpose it and, and kind of get an idea of what we're talking about. Okay, so uh, Aath here is about 15 miles distance from the city of Jerusalem. And then he mentions that he says, he is passed to Migron, uh migron's name means a precipice a steep descent of land at Mickmash or mitchmash i think it's Mickmash uh he hath laid up his carriages Mickmash is about nine miles so he's moved about halfway 15 down to nine miles and here it says he laid up his carriages and basically what that means is uh they hide their supplies they leave their supplies behind because being nine miles away uh, they're at the point where they're close enough they can advance and attack and retreat if they have to, uh, but it gives us enough room gives them enough room. Any smart commander plans on anything uh, You can be confident in the ability of your forces, but you can't be overconfident uh, that's how you end up dead all right so verse twenty nine they are gone over the passage they have taken up their lodging at Giba. Ramah is afraid. Gibeah of Saul is fled. Some of that's kind of clear, but we'll get to what it is. They are gone over the passage. Now, that word passage there is uh, what we would call a wadi. Uh, I'm trying to read my notes here. It's a deep, sunken valley. Uh, And it's actually mentioned in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 15 through 23, that place uh, where they're passing through. And it doesn't say by name here, but... It's it's the geography. It's all mapped together, the geography of where they went. There, there's only a few places that uh, fit the description, so they can kind of figure it out that way. All right, next phrase. They have taken up their lodging at Giba. Giba means hill. Uh, Ramah is afraid. Uh, Gibeah of Saul is fled. Now, here at Giba, they're six miles away. Six miles away. Uh, and it's kind of obvious what's going on here. As the military force moves in and the uh, citizens of those cities, uh, inhabitants of these cities and, and outlying um, places of refuge or whatever they are, uh, they see this approach. They want to get out of the way. And you would too. All right. Verse 30. Uh, Lift up thy voice, O daughter of Gallim. Cause it to be heard unto Laish, O poor Anathoth. <laughs> okay. Lift up thy voice, O daughter of Gallim. Uh, Gallim means springs. It's it's a place to refresh and resupply. Again, uh, they're six miles out. Uh, They've been journeying. They've been marching. So you want to make sure your supplies are at top notch. So you get your water and uh, refresh the horses or any supplies you have with you. Make sure your swords are sharp. Make sure your ammo is full. You know, all that. Uh, Cause it to be heard unto Laish. The name for Laish, it means Lion. And then it says, O poor Anathoth. Anathoth is three miles away. Uh, You could visibly see that far. Uh, You could hear this force coming from Jerusalem. Uh, Anathoth is the home of Jeremiah. And Anathoth by name means answers to prayer. All right. Verse 31. Madmina is removed. The inhabitants of Gibam gather themselves to flee. Uh, Madmina is by name Dunghill. It is the garbage dump. Why you want to pass through that place, I don't know. But Madmina is removed. The inhabitants of Gibam, which means cisterns, gather themselves to flee. And whenever I see that word cisterns, I think of back to uh, Gideon. You remember that? When they had the lamps inside the cisterns and thought the Midianites, it was only 300 of them, yeah. All right, verse 32. As yet shall he remain at Nob that day. He shall shake his hand against the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Nob, <clears throat> uh, by name, means high place. It is in sight of Jerusalem. So here the Assyrian marches, and he reaches this place Nob, and he stands atop it, and he's shaking his fist at Jerusalem. And then verse 33 and 34, uh, we read that already, so uh, we'll skip over that. That's the response that Jesus has. Okay, so that kind of lays it out. And again, there's places in the Bible, if you study it enough, um, you'll see some intricate details of things future. And I'm sure when Isaiah's writing this, he has no idea what's going on. But he knows these places, so he can kind of get in his mind what's going on. There's an advancing force against Jerusalem, and and it's clear to him that way, okay? All right, now, um, back to our notes, uh, the eighth point. What occurs before the destruction of the Assyrian? And that kind of gives it away that the Assyrians are destroyed, but some things happen before this destruction takes place. Now, here we could use the old Western phrase, uh, meanwhile, back at the ranch. In other words, it's like a flipping around of the story and it's telling the other side. All right, the ranch being the area where the other two columns who march to the south are located. Uh, and let me get back to that. Okay, we're talking about three columns. And you remember there's there's the Army of the North, the Army of the South, and the ones coming from the west. Or, no, the east. Let <laughs> me flip my compass around here. Okay. Now, th- what has happened is. Verse 16 tells us God gathers all of these world armies, this massive coalition of forces in the place in the Hebrew tongue called Armageddon. And it is also known in the Hebrew Bible, in our Bible, as the Valley of Jezreel or the Valley of Decision. Okay? But here in Isaiah and in other places in the Bible, we we know there's descriptions of how these armies march. Um, I believe in Daniel and even in... uh. Ezekiel 38 and 39 describes the movement of all these columns. And the, so the, there's the first column. And if you look at a map of Israel, okay? Um, to give you an idea of what we're talking about, so, so that you can be very clear, um, one of the key geographical things that will stand out is the Dead Sea. If you see where the Dead Sea is, north of that is the Sea of Galilee. Okay? Now... A body of water flows from the Sea of Galilee into the Dead Sea. That is the Jordan River. The Jordan River. All right. Now, to the left of the Sea of Galilee is this great piece of land known as the Valley of Jezreel, or where Armageddon is. These are where the forces gather. Below, the area below The Dead Sea, down to the very edge of the landmass, where the Red Sea is, is this Valley of Decision. So, the Valley of Jezreel and Valley of Decision are actually two different places, okay? I misspoke earlier. Apologize for that. (laughs) Okay, but south of the Dead Sea and a little bit to the uh, west is the land of Edom, okay? All right, so to the north, you've got the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Central location is the Dead Sea. To the east, (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm doing it again. To the west of the Dead Sea is the city of Jerusalem, right at the very top edge of the Dead Sea, straight across is where Jerusalem is. Okay, so uh, here is this force. And basically what they're doing, okay, is they're getting in position to completely surround Jerusalem. That's what they're doing, all right? So the first column leaves this area, to the east of the Sea of Galilee in the Valley of Jezreel, and they come right down the edge of the coast, down the edge of the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, They come around Jerusalem, go below it, and then cut back toward the Dead Sea in this Valley of Decision. And what their point is here is because they're going so far, they're actually going to meet column number two underneath. Okay, so where they took an eastern route, a western route. Shoot, it is to the west. I can't keep it straight. I'm sorry, y'all. They come down the coast on a western route and then cut underneath, coming back towards the east. Column number two leaves this valley of Jezreel, okay, and they immediately head east and cut over the Jordan River and then move south along the Jordan River, down by the Dead Sea, still going south, into the land of Edom, and then turn to the left, going back towards the west to meet the first column. So this is like the uh, forces to the south. okay. So that leaves our third column. Now, the third column, uh, and obviously they, they leave a little bit later, otherwise they get there early. This third column led by Gog, or what Isaiah calls the Assyrian, uh, leaves this valley of Jezreel, and he heads directly south in a straight, basically a straight geographical line, uh, to the city of Jerusalem. And, and that's what Isaiah is describing here in verse chapter 10, verses uh, 28 through 32 is is this movement uh, uh, of this one individual, this one column uh, led by the Assyrian uh, where they get to that uh, place right outside of Jerusalem. So that, that hopefully that'll get you uh, kind of knowing what, what, what's going on. All right, now back to our eighth point here. What occurs before the destruction of the Assyrian? Now, from the western side of the Dead Sea south to the Gulf of Aqaba is the area known as the Valley of, of Decision, okay? The Valley of Decision, uh, or the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Same thing, okay? Same place. Uh, Now, to recall where the name comes from, 2 Chronicles chapter 20 gives us the historical events. I'm not going to go back and read it. We're getting short on time uh, to get down through what this point is. Um, uh, But let's recall and point out the Key highlights. During the reign of Jehoshaphat, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and yes, these Edomites gathered an immense army called a great multitude in the Bible and camped near a place called En which is the northernmost part of the valley, directly west of the Dead Sea. Now, as this terrified the king and all Jerusalem, the king proclaimed a nationwide fast and asked God to protect Judah. I can make a point here about, you know, whenever we get in a crisis, then, then we want to do a fast and ask God for help. Shame on us. Uh, now, while still in camp, this massive army turns on each other and kills everyone to the last man. It sounds a lot like what happened to the Midianites against Gideon, too. Uh, and now the Bible tells us it was so great uh, of a slaughter that Judah spent three entire days gathering up all the spoils. Uh, So impressed with this event, Joel used it to describe what Christ will do to these armies in chapter 3 of his book in the very exact same spot. Joel chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Uh, Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, get you down, for the press is full, the fats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon shall be darkened and the stars shall withdraw their shining. Now the events mentioned in Joel chapter 3 are the same as described in Isaiah chapter 34. The judgment of Christ on Edom is the first time that Christ personally intervenes in events on earth. Now, he he may do it spiritually or he may do it from heaven, but here he physically intervenes, personally. Now, this will be done before Christ goes to Jerusalem and deals with the Assyrian. This destruction will be so devastating that Christ's feet does not even touch the ground. Revelation 19.15 says, And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Christ's feet and garments will be literally soaked in blood. And you think, well, how can that be because his feet don't touch the ground? Well, Remember how high the blood was up to the horse's bridle? That's how. So once this battle is over, Christ then prepares to go to Jerusalem to meet up against this Assyrian. But there is a key point to be made here. Jerusalem is located directly northwest from the Valley of Decision where the slaughter just took place. The problem with this location is that the Bible clearly tells us in Matthew 24, 27, For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even into the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. So, Christ does not arrive from the southeast, But here is telling us he arrived directly from due east. Now, what's going on? Is is that a misprint? Is that a confusing point of the Bible? (laughs) Absolutely not. It is not. Now, excuse me. When Christ spoke these words in Matthew, he was with his disciples on top of the Mount of Olives. Due east from this point is the location of Jericho. And east of Jericho and across the Jordan River is the spot where Moses was buried. Back in Deuteronomy 34, verse 5 through 6 tells us, So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab, over against Beth Peor. But no man knoweth of his sepulcher unto this day. All right, now you asked the question, as in, as important a key figure as Moses was, why did God bury him himself and hide his position? Because, A, we would have dug him up and worshipped him as a God. Second, God was keeping him hidden until this point. Now, we know that Michael battled uh, Satan for Moses' body. Remember, we talked we'll talk about that in the book of Dan, Daniel, but humanly speaking, nobody knows. But it's not for us to know. Now, Recall again that the discussion here is based on past events telling us what will happen in the future. And remember that the first nation Israel encountered was Edom, and that this is the first interaction Christ has on events on this earth. Now we come to the next step of the journey. When Israel left their encounter with Edom, they marched to what is called the King's Highway in Moab and turned north to Mount Nebo, which overlooks Jericho and then Jerusalem directly east from the spot where Christ said he would return. So now we see that Edom has been dealt with, exactly according to this duality principle. Past historical events tells us of events in the future. And then we just read where Moses was buried in a valley in Moab near a place called Beth Peor. We also see that Christ, according to Scripture, would not go directly to Jerusalem from the Valley of Decision, but must go to this area where Moses is buried first so that he can arrive in Jerusalem from the east. But what is important about this place? What is important about this place? All right. I'm going to stop here on that question and we'll just have to pick up on the next podcast because we're just running out of time and I, really no good place to stop other than that. So we'll call this the cliffhanger. Uh, just like, you know, you got one is about to be uh, westerns, you know, is a big shoot shootout and a drawdown and, you know, all that's about to happen. That's, this is that kind of a cliffhanger, okay? So, uh, I hope you've enjoyed this, and I hope I didn't confuse you, but I'm, I'm trying to get as much of this information to you in as short a time as I can, uh, but still be clear. Um, so, ho- hopefully you can bear with me and, and follow me in, in what I'm trying to say here, and, and it's not confusing to you, okay? All right, so, thank you for joining me again today. Uh, Pray for me. uh, Pray for each other. Pray for our nation uh, and its leaders. Uh, Even so, Lord, come quickly. And I I believe He's got that foot stepped out there. He's ready to come. Uh, Events are just, you know, you can't really base it on events you see around you, but (laughs) it can't be much longer. It just can't be much longer. Uh, So, again, God bless you and have a great day and I Hopefully you'll join me on the next podcast. Thank you.